We'll stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, fourth book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find our passage this morning on a chairback Bible that should be nearby you on page 887. We come to the wonderful and well-known story of, of Jesus turning water into wine at this wedding in Cana this morning. So let me read our text, which is the first 11 verses of John chapter 2, and then I'll pray for the Lord's blessing on our study and we'll continue together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through his word today. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do ask this morning that you would make us to understand your ways, that we might meditate upon your works, that you would help us to find delight in your truth and to love your gospel. And we ask too that our souls might keep your commandments, that we would Love you exceedingly all of our days, believing always in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometime, I think it was in the fall of last year, a friend and I went on a long trail run in this area up near Oklahoma, and we had decided that we were going to go to some distance or destination that was about seven miles out, and then we would come back, and as these kind of trail runs often go, it wasn't too long into the trail run that someone was running faster than the other, and so we just kind of got separated, but we realized, you know, we were going to make that halfway point some some miles out, and then we'd stop there and meet up again and head back, and as these things do often go, you know, I kind of reached mile seven in my watch dinged to me that, hey, you, you've reached your seventh mile. And I looked around and realized, this isn't what mile seven was supposed to look like. At least by what I saw on the map, it was going to be totally different. And as I have done many times throughout my life on such trail-like experiences, uh, what I realized quite quickly was we had previously had this kind of fork in the road-like moment, and I just missed the sign altogether that it said, you need to go right, and I went left and went completely in the opposite uh, direction because I just can't follow the signs clearly enough. Now, 
Uh, the reason I tell you that is because you may not have thought about, recently at least, how so much of our ordinary life is dictated by seeing signs, isn't it? You can think of store signs and street signs. There are retail signs, restaurant signs. There are exit signs, entrance signs. There are closed signs. There are caution signs. Surely even yesterday, if I told you I was at an event where people were in cap and gown, you would say, well, those caps and gowns are signs of, well, you were at a graduation ceremony. Signs. They, they dictate so much of our life. We have to follow the sign to get where we need to go. We have to follow the sign to get where we must go. And the Apostle John knows this. It's why he fills his gospel so clearly with signs. Uh, so much so that it's quite common to actually break up John's gospel into two distinct halves, what people call in the first 12 chapters, the book of signs, and then in chapters 13 through 21, the book of glory. And you see that again. Notice just verse 11. That's the masthead-like verse written across the text before us today. It's called the first of his signs that Jesus did when he was at this wedding at Cana in Galilee. And so what John fills his gospel with along the way early on in these chapters are all these signs that are meant to show us something about who Jesus is, all of these signs that are meant to be seen. And children, I want you to think about these signs that we're going to see along the way in coming months and certainly the sign you see today. In John's gospel, there's something like sermons to the eyes. They're signaling for us something significant about who Jesus is, aren't they? Uh, we want to come to texts like this with the heart of Moses in the book of Exodus, saying, Lord, show me your glory. Because that's what this text is here to do. And John has already told us in his gospel that that's what his gospel is here to do. If you look back at just chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So he's wanting to report to us as an eyewitness the glory that he saw so that you too might see the same glory with the eyes of faith. And what I want you to see along the way this morning is how sometimes just the simplest sight of the Savior's glory can change everything. It can enliven the soul in joy. It can bring the heart much rest. It can even deal with the afflictions that so often strike us in our life. It's why one old preacher spoke about seeing the sight of Jesus' glory, quote, will alienate all of our afflictions. It makes the burdens light. It makes the darkness no longer difficult. And so our theme then this morning is just seeing the Savior's glory. And I want to show you that in two parts of the text. You might want to disregard the outline in the bulletin that might be before you, because I did that earlier in the week, and I changed it later on in this week. But what, what I want you to see simply along the way, in the first 10 verses, is the transformation at Cana. That's going to occupy most of our time. And then what I want to do is take verse 11 and see the manifestation of Christ, and in many ways just kind of walk back through what we saw in the transformation and perhaps what that shows us specifically 
about the glory of Jesus. So the first thing we want to see is the transformation at Cana. And you'll notice as what John has already done in previous paragraphs, he begins our text with a timestamp. What does he say? On the third day. Now, now, children, when you see a timestamp like that, you should turn you know, the page in your Bible backwards if you need to and begin to kind of calculate days. The third day from what? And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you might remember how what we've seen after the prologue of John chapter 1 is really just the first week in Jesus' earthly ministry. What we saw is day one, John the Baptist was interrogated by a delegation of people from the Pharisees. It was on day two as he was baptizing by the river Jordan, that he he saw Jesus walking towards him, and he preached the gospel saying, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes the sin of the world. Day three, Jesus is passing by John, and he tells two of his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so those disciples, John and Andrew, they follow after Jesus. Andrew then brings his brother Simon, whom Jesus calls Peter, to follow Jesus too. Day four, Peter commands Philip, Follow me. Philip does. We saw this last week. He grabs his friend Nathaniel. And so we now get three days after that fourth day. So this is, if you will, the seventh day, the end of that first week within Jesus' earthly ministry. And if you were an early Jewish person reading this gospel, you would think, at least you ought to, that something significant might be happening just by the simple mention of on the third day. Because there's these pivotal moments in the Old Testament where something significant happens on the third day. Genesis 22, for example, was on the third day that a substitute sacrifice was provided for Abraham who was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's on the third day in Exodus 19 that finally at long last Israel meets with Yahweh there at Mount Sinai. Even in the book of Hosea, it's on the third day that God says he's going to bring his people deliverance. Kids, you might remember the story of Jonah, what happens on the third day, but he's spit out from the belly of the fish. And by the end of this very gospel, John's gospel, what does the third day come to signify? But the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So something significant must be coming along the way. Well, it's in the context, isn't it, of a wedding. Notice as verse 1 continues into verse 2. There was a wedding in Cana at Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Surely that's Jesus and his five disciples at that moment. And if you're to understand something about the sign here in chapter 2, you do need to know something about weddings in the ancient and Near Eastern culture of John's gospel because they're quite different from our own. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty normal in our setting where someone gets married and then the honeymoon ensues, and a honeymoon typically means they go away. Well, at that time, the honeymoon kind of came to the couple in the form of this week-long feast. If you were poor, it would maybe be a wedding feast that would stretch out only three days. But for at least three days, and typically seven days, there would be nothing but eating and drinking, speech-making and dancing, singing and marrying. And there was this great responsibility that belonged in that culture to the bridegroom. It wasn't the family of the bride, as it is in our culture, but it was the bridegroom who was responsible to make sure everyone's feasting was adequately supplied. And that becomes the problem with this party, isn't it? You notice verse 3, the wine runs out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
Of course, it's a simple statement, but it is a significant statement in that culture, as the rabbis would love to say, without wine, no joy. But interestingly enough, it's not just shame, genuine shame, that would have belonged to this bridegroom by running out of wine. It was actually possible in that ancient culture that guests could sue the bridegroom for his lack of hospitality, for running out of supplies. So the bridegroom in this moment here at Cana, he he could be not just facing the heaping on of shame, he might be starting off his marriage with some degree of financial ruin. So it's a real problem that belongs to this commonplace calamity. And understandably so. Uh, Mary comes to Jesus and essentially says, do something about it. Mary, of course, knows who Jesus is better than anyone at this time. Of course, the disciples we saw last week, these early disciples of Jesus, they'd come to know he was the Messiah, he was, he was the Son of God. But, but Mary had received this angelic revelation about who Jesus was and, and what Jesus would do. So this calamity is facing the bridegroom there, and, and Mary is telling Jesus, hey, you need to do something about it. Well, notice what Jesus says, verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? I don't think you're meant to read any sort of rudeness into Jesus' response, however abrupt it might sound to our ears. As best I can tell, it's actually a relative idiom to Jesus' time, what he's saying here, because the language does show up in other places in the Gospels. This has nothing to do with me. Why are you bothering me? But, but you notice it's significant, actually, if you see it in this passage, that Mary is never named as such, is she? She's either the mother of Jesus, or here in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? What's significant about that, students? I wasn't in the Bible's first book, Genesis chapter 3, that the Lord had prophesied that a serpent crusher would come from what? A woman. The seed of of woman would come who would crush the serpent's head and deliver his people from their sins. And maybe it's a not so subtle illusion by the Savior saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? The problem of no wine. Friday night at our house tends to be movie and pizza night and one of our children is currently in a state where Roughly 1.30 in the afternoon, maybe 2 o'clock in the afternoon. About every quarter of the hour, there's this question that comes to me. My wife is often working at the hospital on Wednesdays. So the child would often ask me about every 10 to 15 minutes, is it movie time yet? Is it pizza time yet? No, it's not time yet. Well, can we make the pizza right now? No, it's not time yet. 10 minutes later, is it movie time yet? Is it pizza time yet? No, it's, it's not time yet. And isn't that what Jesus is saying to his mother? It's not time yet. Do you see the end of verse 4? What does he say? My hour has not yet come. And it's, it's quite striking the way that John even pieces this together because in a really elegant way, he doesn't tell us here in this chapter what the hour is that Jesus mentions. He just leaves it out there, doesn't he? My hour has not yet come. And then the story races on. 
Uh, he, he's wanting to elicit, he should be eliciting in our minds some degree of, of an ask of, well, what's the hour to which he refers here? You don't have to go too long into John's gospel to figure out the hour, because it's used often, always refers to the hour of his death at the cursed cross of Calvary. He's saying, Mother, this has nothing to do with what I came to do. Why are you bothering me about wine? And so you have to love Mary's response, don't you? In in verse 5, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, there might be a sanctified imagination required to see it, but it's almost as though Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so Mary just glances right over to the servants and says with a twinkle in her eye, be ready, he's getting to do something and do whatever he says. And surely, surely you would agree with me, those are wonderful marching orders for life, aren't they? And you wake up tomorrow, children, what are you going to do? Do what Jesus says. When you come to your place of work or your school this week, what are you going to do? Well, do what Jesus says. Or maybe even there's this, this wonderful illustration of, of prayer-filled faith where she's come to Jesus asking the Lord to do something. He says, now's not the time. But she's still expectantly looking for God to still do something, even though it might be different than what she had actually asked him to do. So Jesus is getting ready to do something, isn't he? Notice verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So you need to see something here about the quantity of the transformation. You know, kids, if you kind of you split the average there in the middle, you'll get something like about 150 gallons were potentially getting ready to be poured into these jars. And as best I can tell, that would be something like preparing 750 bottles of wine to be dished out to the coming people. But, but it's not so much the quantity that is meant to strike our attention here today. It really is much more the quality of what comes into those jars. For look at verse 7. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And then he says, verse 8, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tastes the water, now turned wine. I meant to see something here about the, the quantity, of course, and the quality uh, of this wine that comes. In, in one elegant poet uh, of old, something like a 14th century poet, he, he said about this transformation in Cana, water poured into vessels that becomes wine. He says, the conscious water saw its creator and blushed. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? The creator has done something. Because John has already told us, hasn't he, in the beginning of his gospel, that all things were created through Jesus. And in the same way that at creation, the Lord said, let there be light. Jesus now has essentially come along and said, let there be wine. As one old preacher says, he turned the water into wine to show that he's divine. And Jesus loves to make old things, new things, doesn't he? 
There's actually this, this theme of, of new things that's going to belong to this chapter, chapter three and chapter four, because here it's new wine. Later on next week, Lord willing, it's a new temple. Then it comes in chapter three, it's a new birth. In chapter four, it's new worship. He, he's, he's revealing to us that he comes, of course, as yes, the creator of all things, because he's the creator of all things. That means he's going to recreate all things. That he loves making all things new. But I want you to pay attention to what is the detail of verse 6. Because specifically even for John's gospel, in a way that I wouldn't necessarily expect, he seems very intent for us to know in verse 6. It's six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. He could have called it just stone water jars. He could have called it just six water jars. But he's heaping up all of these details. And surely it's also signifying for us something about the Savior's glory in this passage because six is the Hebrew number for incomplete. Uh, These jars were used for these Old Testament, these Old Covenant rituals of washing. And here comes Jesus on the seventh day saying, I'm going to take that water and turn it into wine. I'm going to take what used to belong to this ritual, continual cleansing that never could actually deal with the problem of sin. I'm going to pour into it the wine of the new covenant. Which, of course, later on, isn't it true that in the New Testament, what what is his blood likened to but wine? Revealing to us that as he's creating all things new, he's, he's bringing to us that cleansing flood that can once and for all purify people from their sins. There's this incredible transformation of the old to the new that's coming there at Cana. And it strikes the master of the feast, doesn't it, with his taste test. You see that verse 9 and 10, the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. He didn't know where it came from. And so he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone served the good wine first. And the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until Now, I think it's true, don't you, that we often need to remind ourselves, even this text is helping us do such a thing, that Jesus always saves the best for last. If if you know your Bible well, that is true. The Lord always saves the best for last. But in the context here of this, this problem that happens at a party, that results in this provision that only amplifies the feasting. Uh, What we see is it's not just that Jesus saves the best for last. It's true that when Jesus is present with his people, everything is better. The joy only amplifies, the joy only increases. So it's why uh, one other old preacher said when thinking about this text, believers ought to be unutterably happy. He says, men and women redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, that new wine they ought to be habitually almost too happy to live because they've known the joy that belongs to Jesus' cleansing. I wonder if you're the kind of person that walks with Jesus day in and day in, day out, week in and week out, and you're known for your joy because you're with the Savior at all times. Or are you known for something other than joy? When Jesus transforms a heart, much like he transforms water into wine, he takes something old and makes it new. Do you understand how joy floods in to God's people? 
That's why you want to be in a place, don't you, when you're with God's people, it's normal to see people smiling, laughing, reveling in the life they have in Jesus Christ. Because there's a transformation that's occurred. But, verse 11, again, is the masthead verse. Gives us the manifestation of Christ. Notice again, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. When some of my sisters come over and play with the kids or even cousins arrive, it's quite common that when the extended family shows up to our house that the children will play hide-and-seek throughout our, our home. And, and some of the younger kids, they, they love to be the seeker. But probably because they're younger, they're not the greatest seekers around. And so when they have the responsibility to seek, it's not long into their haunting through a hallway or a room that they'll start to shout out something throughout the house. They'll say, give me a hint. Give me a hint. And, and, and John is here to give you a hint. That's what he's saying. But it's more than a hint, isn't it? At who Jesus is. What's the purpose of the sign? To see Jesus' glory. But what I want to do here in this second section is ask the question of how. How? Does he reveal his glory in this wonderful sign at a wedding? I want to give you three things, and then we'll be done today. I want you to see his glory in his focus. So beyond the reality that he is the creator of all things, of course, he can take old things and make them new things. What you need to see is, is the glory of his focus. Because again, what does he say to his mother in verse 4? But my hour has not yet come. Jesus saved the bridegroom from shame. Save him from potential litigation that has nothing to do with me, mother. So what, what is he announcing here from the outset? But, but his will, his purpose, his determination, his focus, his food even as the gospel will soon say, is to do his father's will, not bow to the wishes of even someone like his mother. And the reason why that's such a good thing for people like you and me Sinners like you and me, is here's a deliverer who can't be distracted from his purpose. Here's a savior who can't be sidetracked from what he came to do, which is die for sinners like you and me. Maybe it's even something of an encouragement, an exhortation to a church like ours. Let us not be sidetracked, distracted from declaring the simplicity and the glory and the beauty of what Jesus came to do. Which is, of course, save sinners through his death. So see the glory in his focus. Number two, see the glory in his fulfillment. The first sign in his ministry relates to wine. And you know the Lord never does anything accidentally. So you should ask the question, why wine? Is there anything important in the Old Testament about wine flowing at a feast? Well, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you briefly. Isaiah 25 says, oh, there's something really important about wine flowing at a feast. Because Isaiah 25 says this, it's on the mountain of the Lord of hosts that he will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And there he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. See the glory in his fulfillment. 
right from the outset, if you had eyes to see as an Old Testament interpreter, reader at that time, you would see something about the new kingdom has finally come. Water has become wine. The feast is here, and that's really the third thing that you're meant to see, I think, about the Savior's glory, is see the feast. See the glory of his feast. It's no accident that he's at a wedding. It's no accident that the sign involves wine. It's no accident that feasting ensues. Because you'll notice again what happens in verse 9 and 10. Look at the end. The master of the feast calls the bridegroom and says to him, You've served the best last. But of course, the bridegroom didn't do anything, did he? Nor does Jesus even take credit for doing what he did. Something of a humility of the Savior's glory here. But only one chapter later, as John the Baptist departs from the scene, the title that he attaches to Jesus, of all the titles he could have mentioned, he doesn't again speak about him as the Lamb of God. He doesn't speak about him as the Redeemer. He doesn't speak about him as the Deliverer or the Savior. He says he is the Bridegroom. Do you know that all of human history is barreling forward to what the book of Revelation, written by this same apostle, calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. That in Revelation chapter 19, the apostle John, he sees this wonderful, actually he hears at first, he hears this voice of many waters is what he says, these kind of claps and peals of thunder, uh, announcing, rejoice and be glad because the wedding feast of the Lamb has come. He hears that, then he hears next. John, write this down. Blessed is everyone invited to the Lamb's wedding feast. And you see here, Jesus is invited in John 2 to a wedding. But it's through his sign there that he's actually inviting you to his wedding of new wine, of full grace, of of final salvation. So I wonder if you've been invited to this wedding You see, again, look at verse 11, the very final part of our text, what happened with his disciples. His disciples believed in him. We have a fair amount of extended family that live up in Colorado, so we make something of an annual trip to visit them. I know I've told you some of this before, but whenever we kind of cross the border from Kansas into Colorado and we begin to make our way west, and creep ever closer to the Rocky Mountains. I'll tell the kids, be on the lookout. See who can see the mountain first. And I say that like two hours before the mountains show up. (laughs) And so as you can expect, I'm always the one that sees it first, because I'm the one driving. And so I'll just kind of say, I see the mountains. And then the kids begin to look. And because of the diversity in our children's ages, you understand the diversity and the responses that soon come. Some will say, oh, look, there they are. Some will say, oh, look, there they are. But if you look at their faces, you can tell they have no idea where the mountains are. (laughs) And then there's the honest ones that say, I can't see it. You're meant to see something here of the glory of Christ, and some of you see it. Some of you don't see it, and you must see it. But you know that you could also be in here, and for years you said, I see it. But you never really have. 
His disciples saw the glory and believed in who Jesus was. The bridegroom finally arrived. I do hope that all of you will leave today seeing that same glory. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, we do thank you that the apostles saw the glory of your Son, that even through this word they are preaching that same glory unto us. Let us even this day from the fullness of your Son receive the grace upon grace that overflows even to the brim, grace that's found only in him, the only one in whose name we pray, amen. Well, let's stand together as we uh, respond to God's word, turning in our hymnals. It's number 498, and we sing, Jesus, what a friend of sinners.